Welcome to Digfin Vox, the podcast brought to you by Digital Finance Media. Digfin is an online media platform covering the people and organizations using technology to transform financial services. In today's episode, we look at an article authored by Standard Chartered Group's Chief Information Officer, Michael Goritz, who explains the strategy behind the bank's work in the KYC chain. It sounds naughty, but it's actually just the Know Your Client chain, as well as initiatives such as Singapore's PayNow. He also digs into the present of digital identities in Asia and compares it to the future state, one perhaps where waiting in line with pieces of paper to open a bank account will be as obsolete as buggy whip handles and VHS rentals. Thanks for joining us today, James. So if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is the first article we've discussed where you were not the author. Is this the first first guest writer for Digital Finance Media? Yes. Nice. Yes, we had uh, we had um, Michael Goritz, who is the Group Chief Information Officer at Standard Chartered Bank in Singapore, uh, give us his thoughts on digital identity and the role that banks are playing. So he's talking about uh, uh, digital identity. Um, what's yes. the dream, and what's the reality, according to um, to Mr. Goritz? Okay, well, the the dream is that people will be able to uh, engage in all kind of services, really just using their mobile phone and a digital identity, perhaps even one that crosses borders someday, uh, so that you don't have to remember passwords, uh, you don't have to uh, file paper if you want to file your taxes, if you want to get a driving license, if you want to uh, transfer money, if you want to uh, access any kind of public or private services. Uh, right now, today, we all live with, you know, the dreaded passwords. We've got to file if, you know, just to open a bank account, you've got to file a lot of paperwork. And particularly in developing countries, people may not have that kind of paperwork. They may not have any uh, government-issued means of asserting they are who whom they are. Uh, it's also a way to allow banks and other groups to... Uh, Streamline the way they deal with um, compliance, combating fraud, making sure that they know who the client is, combating uh, laundering of money, and so that's that's the dream. So we live in this, we move into this sort of perfect frictionless world where just because of my biometric data, which is unique to me as an individual, I can kind of do whatever I want to do, uh, even if I don't have a, a lot of money, even if I don't have a traditional bank account or, or these sorts of things. What uh, are banks able to do now? Uh, and what do they need to do to start taking advantage of the potential of this technology? Banks can't do very much today. Uh, they are hobbled by their own legacy systems. They're hobbled by regulatory demands that are 20th century. And you know, they, they operate in the world as we all know it, where they do demand passwords, where their websites are usually pretty clunky. Uh, and, you know, it's and, and they cannot reach a lot of people, whether they are in emerging markets, you know, in, in places like Asia or if or even just poor people in in places like the United States who don't have a bank account. So the banks are uh, just as 
stuffed with paperwork and red tape as ever. Uh, so banks such as Standard Chartered are, and, and many other institutions as well, are engaged in a variety of different programs, some of these internal, some of these working with either other banks or with the governments in different countries to find ways to try to get around this. For banks and for regulators, uh, you know, they really want to be able to reduce their costs. They don't want to have to have all this paperwork. Uh, they want they can streamline their back office up and administration, uh, particularly around compliance. At the same time, they can make the the experience for their customers potentially a lot more appealing. Or ba banks can even just sort of disappear into the background, and you wouldn't even notice that there's a bank at work when you want to transact. Kind of like when you want to buy something today on the internet and you use PayPal. It's sort of pretty easy once you're registered. So, who would oversee? the creation of these digital identities? Would it differ by institution? Is it a government initiative? How does he see that rolling out? Uh, well, Michael Gore has pointed to two things going on, uh, which are probably at the forefront of in, in Asia Pacific, and they're probably world leaders in their regards. One is in Singapore, and the other is in India. So in Singapore, uh, starting this year, uh, the government expanded uh, its basically sort of like its social security number system, which is sort of the analogy. They, they have a system of personal data um, in a, a digital vault, which uh, the Singaporean government calls MyInfo. It was only launched last year. Uh, it was created by the Government Technology Agency, and it pools residents' data, whether you're a Singaporean citizen or somebody who's living there permanently, uh, your name, uh, your local registration number, sort of like a, like I said, a social security or a, a license plate number for, for the U.S., driver's license number, I mean, uh, and your registered address. Uh, and they pull this information from a variety of different government agencies, uh, immigration, tax, uh, and so on. And it's now in a consolidated repository. Uh, and if you, it's voluntary, it's not, uh, it's, you do not have to join, but the benefits to joining are that you can use your digital identity to automatically fill up forms uh, for a variety of uh, electronic services provided by government agencies. And starting this past summer, starting really just uh, about two months ago, uh, a number of banks, uh, the three big Singaporean banks, DBS, UOB, and OCBC, as well as Standard Chartered, uh, are now also participating in this. So you don't need to key in all of these, uh, your your ID number, your address, and so on, uh, or submit physical forms to verify that this is you, and you can just pull it digitally from the My Info thing, which means you can potentially uh, transfer money, uh, open an account, do basic services with these banks. And this is still in a, a testing phase, but I think this is where things are going to go, and it's a good case for a developed market. Who? Um owns the data. I mean, I'm assuming that if you have a digital identity that, you know, there's some kind of a trans is the transaction history appended to your, uh, your personal information. Are there privacy issues? There's definitely privacy issues. Uh, you, you own the data in theory. Uh, and it's not, I don't want to say it's coercive. It's, it's, it's a lot of carrots. There's not really sticks today. Um, but I think it, be, it will become increasingly difficult not to join these things once they get kind of a snowball effect. Uh, data is, is definitely a, a big a big issue. Uh, there are 
when you're dealing with government agencies, uh, I think you know the government. You might own the data in, in in theory, but I think you know there's there are questions about how much uh, privacy exists uh, and so on. In, in India, there are some groups that are protesting the the system based setup. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, so one, we are seeing though that in the private sector uh, and in different other jurisdictions, I think. Um, you know, governments would not be able to have uh, such buy-in. You know, I think in Singapore, it's a very high-trust country. People have a lot of faith in the the, the skill and uh, the fairness of their government. It's a very low-corruption society. Uh, it's a small place, too, as well. So, uh, you know, people are more willing to buy into a government-red registry. It's pretty hard to see, you know, a culture like, say, the United States or, or even Hong Kong, where people have a a natural distrust or disinclination to rely on government services, it, it might be a harder sell to set up something like this. We've got in the U.S., of course, we'll have a driver's license, but you know, what kind of political uh, emphasis would there be on on turning that into a, a digital database? So I think these things will happen. I mean, we're already giving all our data to Mark Zuckerberg anyway, right? So <laughs> yeah. you know, to some extent, you know, what what is what is freedom? But uh, but. But I think it'll be different different ways it'll happen in different countries. And one company you could ask me about is uh, KYC Chain, which is actually a Hong Kong startup, uh, which Standard Chartered is working with on a proof of concept uh, around a decentralized, it's basically a blockchain, it's decentralized ledger technology that they're using uh, to connect different databases uh, so that you can still keep your digital identity. Uh, no company, uh, no bank, uh, no social media group, no government owns your data, uh, and there's no middleman as well. But for you, if you use this KYC chain service and it works out, and enough people get on that network, then theoretically you can move your data, you can have it go where you want it to go, uh, and uh, and you still have control and consent, uh, at least in in, in theory. Um, so that there are private sector initiatives going on around allowing consumers or citizens to own and have sovereignty over their data. And I think there's not going to be any one solution, but we could be looking at a variety of different patterns depending on the jurisdiction, depending on the kind of infrastructure the government has set up uh, and what banks are allowed to do, uh, and, and varying degrees, I think, of individuals having control and access and able to, to manage and, and sell their data. We've talked about it on previous podcasts and you mentioned it re, uh, just now. Um, can you give us a, just for the people who might've missed it, give a quick overview of uh, compare and contrast the Singapore system with what's going on in India. So, and in, in both of them have government run digital identity schemes. Uh, so we talked about, what Singapore is doing with MyInfo. India launched Adhar, uh, which came out last year. Uh, Adhar is a it's a 12-digit unique identity number that's issued to all Indian residents based on their biometric data and their demographics. And all the data is collected by a, an authority in India. It's called the Unique Identification Authority of India, which is you, you die or something like that. I'm not quite sure how they pronounce it. Uh, and this was set up by the, the local information technology ministry. Um, 
it is the large, largest biometric ID system in the world. So they've, it's, it's voluntary, uh, but over 99% of adult Indians have been enrolled. We're talking about over a billion people are already involved in this thing. So it's pretty, you know, in terms of scale, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, there have been some limits to what India's government can do with it. The Supreme Court has been involved in a number of cases uh, sort of setting out limits to what it says, this, how, the, how this data can be used or not used. So, uh, for example, it, it cannot be mandatory for allowing people to get their benefits under government welfare schemes, i.e., you do not have to have signed up for this thing to still receive your government benefits. But other things they can make it uh, mandatory for, including bank accounts. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're going to start to see banks increasingly at the center of what's going on with Adhar in, in India. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's in terms of its, its breadth, its vision, its scale, its scope, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and they're now linking this thing to, well, they're talking about linking the, this data to getting a passport, to getting a SIM card if you want to make a phone call, uh, linking it to um, your voting, uh, your, your reg registering to vote. So, you know, that digital identity is going to become, you know, all pervasive in, in a lot of ways. Interesting. Um, are these digital identities going to be, uh, will we be able to use them for cross-border transactions or is it really just kind of playing in separate sandboxes at this point? Uh, in terms of the identities themselves, these are domestic. Uh, so yes, we eat everybody in their own little silo. But I believe that what banks want to do is enable, well, maybe banks don't want to do this because banks charge a fee for cross-border payments. But there are certainly fintechs out there, lots of them, that are working on cross-border payment solutions, whether it's remittances or, um, or, or corporate financing for trade, trade financing stuff. Uh, uh, and just personal money transfers. So I think the banks will have to participate in this to some extent just so that they, they don't get um, left out. Uh, you know, better to, if you can't beat them, join them. So, you know, the, and, and the banks will, some banks will decide this is also a competitive advantage. Uh, even today, banks compete on, you know, for their wealthier, uh, better traveled clientele, uh, you know, if, some some banks do a better job than others at providing a a global service. You know, I with my bank, uh, it, they they don't, um, or um, or I'm not rich enough for them to bother. Uh, you know, if I I use my ATM in Hong Kong, fine. But if I use the same bank's ATM in another country, I get the same kind of crazy fees. Um, but other banks compete on that. So, you know, th this stuff will this this will be. I think cross border stuff will be more down to private sector. Um, but it could be interesting to see if, within regions at least, I know, you know, the Singaporean authorities are very keen to promote ASEAN fintech at, a, at an ASEAN level. I don't know if they'll ever really be able to ex extend government IDs cross-border, but they might be able to facilitate other aspects of that with banking, I'm sure, banking, telecoms, and yeah. other services at the heart. Definitely a potential threat to certain types of sovereignty, I would think, if they, you know, if you did have an ID that, uh, that would allow you to, like, you know, open bank accounts in other countries and things like that. Uh, it seems like it's well, like, be a big change. You, 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 theoretically, you can do that already, but you just have to go to that country, I suppose, and show it with some documentation. It should make it easier to do a lot of things, yeah. but within 
I think people are trying, particularly at the private sector level, companies like KYC Chain there and and or a bank, uh, they will be careful to implement things that are already within existing regulation, and they're not going to um, they're not going to try to challenge it. The challenge for that sort of thing, I think, comes more from uh, cryptocurrency, so Bitcoin exchanges. Uh, we just did a story. Uh, that ran this week uh, featuring Bobby Lee, who's the CEO of BTCC, based in Shanghai, which is now the longest-standing uh, existing Bitcoin exchange in the world. Uh, and, you know, I, I had a coffee with him, and we talked about, you know, how what it means when you can move money, well, you can move stores of value in the form of Bitcoins, and, you know, are you actually moving something across the border or is it just in the cloud and there's no, you know, the idea that I'm in a particular geography, does that matter? Right. If I cross a border, you know, am I, I'm just crossing with a gigabyte in my phone or a, a private key uh, that can turn a digital wallet somewhere. You know, am I moving money by crossing from Shenzhen to Hong Kong or from Hong Kong to the U.S. or am I... Or is it already in the cloud and it's it's, it's not subject to any kind of, of sense? You know, the U.S. border customs now, uh, they, they can check your phone to see what kind of passwords and information you've got on your phone. And I think that's more around trying to protect against terrorism. But the same same principles could, in theory, apply to looking to see, are you, you know, do you own a, a Bitcoin wallet? Uh, and if you're coming into the country, does that mean that you're importing all the money that's stored, all the bitcoins you've stored. I mean, you may have no intent whatsoever to, to transact, or you could. You know, it's so nobody knows. This stuff is all very, uh, very unknown. Wow. Uh, well, very exciting, uh, and we'll be uh, keeping a close eye on that as uh, as that develops. Thank you uh, very, very much for joining us today, Jay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks everybody for listening. If you want to learn more about the present and future of digital identity in Asia, you can read Michael Gorett's story on the DigFin website at www.digitalfinancemedia.com. The articles there are free, but you have to register. I'm Dave Swifler, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the head of public relations for SciSense a disruptive business intelligence technology provider that sits at the crossroads of artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, and machine learning. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a good rating and share it on social media so your friends can find it too. This is DigFen Vox.